Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This morning we're just going to focus on one thing that God requires. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to educate us. Pray that you would warm our hearts. And we pray that you would mold our wills, that you would transform us by your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing God requires. But before we make a move to talking about what God wants us to do for him, because that's really what we're talking about. When we talk about what God requires, we're talking about what is his expectation for us. How, how do we respond to God? What does God require? Before we make a move towards what does God want us to do for him, we need to remember what God has done for us. That's what motivates our obedience. But we get this. We, we, in life, we get this wrong all the time. This is we start with what's God's expectation? What does he require? Before we remember that what he requires is always a response to his initiative towards us. That changes everything. So before we make a move to understanding and applying verse 8, we got to understand the context around verse 8. So I hope you have your Bible open because you're going to need to look at it with me. Micah, I've already said, a prophet of the Lord. And in the larger context of of what he is writing here, what he has said, there's two things taking place. First, it's this indictment of the Lord against his people. An indictment. That sounds, I don't like when I get served indictments. (laughs) And I especially don't like it when God has an indictment. But that's the context. If you you look at chapter 6, the heading there, And the ESV is the indictment of the Lord. So the context here is the Lord's indictment, but what the Lord is going to move towards is the Lord's restoration. So that's what's taking place in the big context. The Lord's indictment, the Lord's restoration. But the Lord has an indictment. The Lord has beef with his people with humanity, with his creation. Basically, God is saying, you aren't right with God. You're not acting right in your relationship with God, in your relationship to God. So therefore, there's this friction, there's this 
enmity between them and God. So he's contending with them. He's fighting with them. And that's just like we heard last week. That's half of the gospel. Remember the sermon we read last week? Half of the gospel is you ain't right. You're not right with God. So it's a foolish task to begin to talk about what you're going to do for God when you're not even right with God. That's half the gospel. The other half of the gospel is this. You can be right with God. And it's through his initiative towards those who are not right with him. So before God lays out his requirements that are so clearly put here in verse 8, the Lord summons his people to a rib. It's Hebrew. A legal procedure. That's how this unfolds. Micah invites God to set forth his case. Hear what the Lord says. That's verse 1 of chapter 6. He invites God to bring his case against the people with creation serving as his primary witness. God begins by questioning them. Verse 3. What have I done to you? That's the first question God asked. What have I done to you? And then he follows it with another question. How have I wearied you? It's an interesting question for God to ask, isn't it? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, he says. Tell me. And then, from verses 4, verses 4 and 5, God begins to catalog what he's done for them. And it serves as a reminder of his initiative towards them. So he recounts His past faithfulness. He asks them a question. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And then he begins to recount the things that he has done to them and for them. It's a recounting of his faithfulness. So he says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And then he puts out some details, which include people, Balak and Balaam, and places like Shittim and Gilgal, which probably don't mean a lot to us, and so we don't understand what God's talking about. In essence, God says, I have not let you down. I have brought you up. No matter what you're facing, right now God hasn't let you down God won't let you down God is leaning towards you to bring you up amen anybody need to hear that this morning I feel like I need to hear that this morning we talk sanctity of human life there's a lot of people there's probably many people watching 
the live stream this morning who couldn't come because they knew it was sanctity of human life. People in this room that have had abortions, have participated in abortions. I've talked to many women and men who won't show up to church on this Sunday because the guilt they feel is too great. God will not let you down. God will bring you up. And you are not beyond the reaches of his mercy and his grace. This whole room is filled with people who are desperately in need of his grace. And we have found him to be one who leans towards us in grace. Amen? God, it says, I haven't let you down. I've brought you up. I rescued you out of slavery in Egypt, even though these people that Micah is speaking to weren't actually physically present when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That was hundreds of years ago. What he's saying, though, he's reminding them that you're my people. You're you're connected to the people that I rescued. You're my covenant people. This is what he's reminding them, and he's saying it's as if you were there. The Exodus symbolizes not only the covenant love of God, but also his claim upon the covenant loyalty of his people. So there's an expectation to those that God has shown his grace. There's this, there's this claim now that grace makes upon our lives that, that, that results in activity or action or obedience on our behalf in response to his grace. His liberation of the Israelite slaves from Egyptian rule was intended to show his love, but also to create this permanent bond of allegiance between him and all their descendants. That's what he's calling to mind here. It's always the grace of God that then motivates you towards him. Charles Wesley, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and you know the old hymn? And followed thee. What is it that produced his following? It was being rescued. It was grace being shown to them. The chains fell off. My heart was free. What did I do once my heart became free? I rose, went forth, and followed Jesus. Our loyalty, our obedience to God is always a response to his deliverance. I say this over and over again. Just like in the sermon last week, I quoted Luther saying that the gospel is something that we must have continually beat into our heads. It's kind of a... A tough way of hearing it, 
but, but some of us need it that way. We need to be reminded that that's something that needs to be, be continually into our heads week after week. I feel like I say this over and over again, that loyalty and obedience to God is always a response to his grace. And I know for a fact that I need to be reminded of that, and I know for a fact that you need to be reminded of that. It's always a response. You don't obey so that you can get God to do something. You, you obey because God has done something. So God is saying, remember me. Remember what I've done. He's prodding their memory. Remember me. Remember my grace. Remember what I've done. But God's not like a history professor who's calling for the kind of memory work necessary to pass a history examination. He's not calling for the kind of memory work that I made a life of education in. Cramming the night before so that I could pass the test by remembering all the facts and the dates, but it had no impact upon my life whatsoever. Within 24 hours, it was all gone but I only cared about whether I passed or not. And I sometimes didn't care about that. <laughs> so the kind of memory that, he's, that God is calling on here is he's, he's, he's asking for them to reflect on the impact that God has made in their lives. That should not be hard for us to do. No matter how distant you feel from God, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in him and you're following him, if I say, tell me, can you tell me about points in your life where God has made a major impact? That shouldn't be like, well, can I come back tomorrow? Because I'd like to cram for that tonight. <laughs> that should be right, right there. Right there, I'm looking into the eyes of people that I know, I know your stories. I know how God has made a massive, transforming impact on your life. And that's what he's saying. I'm calling this to mind. Before you do anything for me, I want you to remember what I have done for you. So then he talks about the significance of Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam, the son of Beor. Let me just touch on this for a minute so it'll help you understand what God's telling them to remember. Balak plotted against Israel just as they had been wandering in the wilderness, he set them free. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until those who disbelieved God had died off. And then he's going to bring them into the promised land. And as they were on the edge of going into the promised land, after 40 years and in the promised land, there were the enemies of God. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're getting ready to displace God's enemies, right when they drew to the edge of it, according to the account from Numbers, the king of Moab, Balak, and the people of Midian put their heads together in a desperate attempt to resist the Israelites and to keep them from entering the promised land. And they thought they could aid their fighting by putting a spell on the Israelites. So they got Balaam, son of Beor, to come and put a spell on them. 
He was enlisted to do some cursing, but he found himself strangely reluctant. Despite the promise of great reward. And instead of putting a curse on the people, he actually put a blessing on them. And then we've got this, it's, you know, it's embarrassing to, to even say it, but this shit him <laughs> to Gilgal. I know you all wanted to laugh. That was just like, that was the open window. That was your release. Because I'm up here having to say it, and you're all like, wow, you know, why does he got to say that? What's going on here? And what happened? God says in verse 5, Oh my people, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? Here's the paraphrase. How many more examples do you want me to give of my faithfulness to you? That's the, that's the paraphrase. So he even says, here's one more. Shittim was the last stopping point before crossing into the promised land at the point of Gilgal. What lay between them? A raging, roaring river. The Jordan. So what is God reminding them of? He's reminding that thanks to a manifestation of Yahweh's power, the Jordan walled up and they went through to Gilgal. What's the point? Memories of God's faithfulness to rescue us should impel us toward a commitment to God that shows itself in a radically different way of life than the world around us. Shall I say it again? Memories of God's faithfulness to rescue us should impel us toward a commitment to God that shows itself in a radically different way of life than the world around us. This is why God is doing this. He's recounting his faithfulness to them that they might respond rightly to him. Faith is strengthened in the present by recounting the Lord's mercy and provision of the past. Your faith is strengthened in the present as you recount God's faithfulness and His mercy to you in the past. Some of the people that I know who are people that I would say are the closest to God are those that have been brought through significant trial. It's just true. It's like, it's like I look at my own life and sometimes I look at other people's lives, I look at those who are going through trial and those who respond to God in the face of trial, and I marvel over their closeness and their relationship with Jesus. But I'm not brave enough to ask God to bring more trial into my life that I might grow closer to Him. And you're not either. And we shouldn't. 
the Lord says we should pray that God would deliver us from evil and not lead us into temptation. So there's good warrant for not praying that God would bring more trial into your life that would tempt you. But I'm saying, though, that faith is strengthened in the present by recounting the Lord's mercy and provision of the past. Some of the people that I know, one of my closest friends, I would say, is a person that I admire because I see them pressing into Christ. That's the language we use with one another when we talk about pressing into Christ despite life's circumstances. And I, I have watched him walk through very, very, very difficult trials where he really questioned God's goodness to him. God's sovereign rule over everything and why, if he was good, he would allow these circumstances to come into his life. And as he has pressed into God for difficult answers to difficult questions, his faith has been strengthened. More so than those who are just cruising through life without an awareness of really any need for God at all. That's an important reminder for all of us because trial is coming to us in some form or shape. It's coming. Allow your faith to be strengthened in the present as you recount God's faithfulness to you in the past. But church... The grace of God makes a claim upon our lives. The response to grace is always joy. It's always gratitude. It's always joyful obedience. It's always a walk worthy of the gospel. Now, let me comment briefly on what follows. And I am going to comment briefly here. After God makes his case against his people, they question, well, with what shall we come before the Lord? Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? This is the people's question. This is the question for all people in every age. With what shall I come before the Lord? But their response shows a continued, complete misunderstanding of God, even an anger towards God, because what they do is they begin to detail their sacrifices. Like, what does the Lord require? Shall I bow myself? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What are they doing here? They're making this list of sacrifices that they're wondering whether they have to make to God in order to get right with God, in order to enter into his presence. And it's an absurd list. The value of their sacrifice escalates. And Micah is exposing a wrong attitude among the people that sees their sacrifice as the price paid to enter into God's presence. What's the price we have to pay to be saved? What's the price you have to pay to be saved? Zero. 
Notice I said, what's the price you have to pay to be saved? There is a price to be paid for your salvation. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We always seem to mess up what God makes so simple. What does God require in response to grace? After setting the record straight, he moves to tell them. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you in response to grace? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require? The Lord desires to see the primary focus of love demonstrated in three areas, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We're only going to look at justice briefly. The first requirement of God is oriented toward the community. The Old Testament believers stood within a circle of other faithful men and women all bound together by a common membership and a covenant relationship with God. And so there was rules, there was expectations. What, did, what was the one thing that God required? That they relate to one another in a way that would reflect and honor God. And the first thing he says is do justice. So God has laid out moral standards. He's laid out social standards that we're called to practice in our relationships with one another, in our relationships as humans. A commitment to God includes a commitment to his ways. A commitment to God includes a commitment to justice. Justice was a word used by prophets like Micah to sum up their social obligation to the human community. There's a lot of negative things that it prohibits. Things like perjury, bribery, oppression. This is what Micah's talking about. What the Lord is talking about when they talk about the one thing God requires and he mentions justice. Great quote from a comment from a uh, Hebrew scholar. Justice, it calls for a sense of responsibility toward weaker members of society lest they go to the wall. It, re- it calls for a sense of responsibility toward weaker members of society lest they go to the wall. Justice insists on the rights of others. It demands an instinct for social preservation. What less should we give to God than total obedience to his claims in every area of life? The gospel is what shapes this kind of behavior that God requires. The gospel is what shapes the act of justice in our lives. It's a response to his grace. Acting like Christians in this fallen, broken world is always gospel preceded. It's always gospel powered. So let's make application to the issue of abortion and the sanctity of human life because this is always true. Right thinking always leads to right actions. If you want right actions, you start with your thinking. And there's a lot of confusing dialogue and myths out there concerning the issue of abortion, and it's everywhere. 
It's the air we breathe now. So we're just going to work through a few to ensure that our thinking is right so that our thinking can lead us to act the action that God requires. What's the one thing he requires? Justice. So here's some things that when I survey the news and the landscape, things that I see getting thrown around as fact or statements that we hear, perhaps you could even think of them as myths. Here's one, that most abortions are about poverty, health complications, and rape. That's, that's kind of the language that we see talked about. We, we, we see people talking on the extremes. That abortion is about poverty, health complications, and rape. It's interesting. I don't know if you guys will be able to read this, but I, I've got a statistic I want to show you. The state of Florida is one of the only states that records a reason for every abortion that occurs within its borders every year. So in 2020, there were 74,868 abortions in the state of Florida. The table lists each reason and the percentage of abortions. So first percentage, 0.01%, the pregnancy resulted from an incestuous relationship. 0.15%, the person, the woman was raped. 0.20%, the woman's life was endangered. 0.98%, there was a serious fetal abnormality. 1.48, the woman's physical health was threatened by the pregnancy. 1.88, the woman's psychological health was threatened by the pregnancy. 20.4%, The woman aborted for social or economic reasons. 74.9%. No reason. Now, it's just one statistic, guys. I can't go through them all. I got eight more minutes. But I'm trying to help you to see that there's some myths out there about abortion being about poverty and health complications and rape. And it is about those things, but those are the extremes. You see, the graphic shows us that. Another statement we'll hear, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Abortion advocates try to define the unborn baby as part of the woman's body, but frankly, this is anti-science, guys. A baby has its own distinct DNA, fingerprints, heartbeat, thoughts, emotions, and pain and pleasure sensations. Science has confirmed this repeatedly. A recent study shows that preborn babies feel pain as early as 12 weeks of gestation. So it, it's just, it's not a scientific argument to say, my body, my choice. Another thing we'll hear. Well, If we make laws that restrict abortion or that ban abortion, it doesn't really decrease it. We'll hear this. First of all, that's not a moral argument. If people had said outlawing slavery won't end slavery, it'll just go back alley. 
that wouldn't have been a reason to not issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And just last year, when Texas changed their law restricting abortions, NPR released an article titled, Abortions in Texas Fell 60% in the First Month After Its New Law Took Effect. So the, the church, what this means is the issue of justice should be on our minds when we head into the voting booth. It's not the only place we do justice. Chester County Connect is here with representatives today to talk with you at the end of the service. We want to support them and, and, and pray about this issue. The way we vote is not the only place we do justice, but influencing the laws of the land through our vote should be on the mind of every Christian when we do cast our vote. All right, fourth I'll just make a comment on this. Some of the headlines that we read would have us believe that most people in America want abortion without restriction. And that's just simply not true. A poll's show this over and over and over again. I was looking at statistics. 538, Pew, Marist. Surveys done over and over again that show over 70% of Americans want some legal restrictions on abortion. Now, does that get at the issue of obedience to justice? No, I'm just using it as a statistic to help us see that the air we breathe is that everybody just wants to have an abortion until... Uh, the day that the child is born. And it's just not simply, it's simply not true in America. Most people want some restrictions on abortions. Last question. Can Christians make a difference? Sometimes I feel like there's so much fear and so much, uh, the sky is falling then I think we forget that we're actually called to be a city upon a hill. That we're actually called to make a difference. And Christians have always made a difference and in God's plan will always make a difference. Christians are making a difference though when it comes to issues of justice. You can do the research on this. Giving to the poor. This kind of research has been done over and over again, which is an issue of justice. Americans who go to church and who go to church weekly and pray daily, 65% of those people in that category have given to the poor in the last seven days. This is research that has been done. Compared to other Americans who give at the rate of 40%. Christians are exponentially more generous to the poor than the rest of the population. Adoption rates. Christians adopt at a rate of 5%. All other U.S. population, around 2%. So Christians adopt at more than two times the national average. Whenever, wherever you find a group of Christians... You're going to find, a, uh, you should find, if you find a group of true Christians, you'll find a people committed to what God requires in response to his grace. This is what we should expect. 
even if and as the world around us grows darker and darker and darker, those of us that are in Christ will shine brighter and brighter and brighter as we live faithfully for Christ and serve his purposes in our generation.